Uh, again, let me say how much I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity to get to preach the gospel, period. I don't care what format it might be, whether it be standing in a pulpit, sitting at my desk that is probably improperly decorated. So, uh, But I, I am certainly honored, and I appreciate the opportunity. If you've got your Bibles tonight, turn to John chapter 12, and let's talk a little bit about background before we get into the actual text. We're going to be in verses 20 to 36. But before we get there, let's back up and get a little background. If you go to John chapter 11, it's a familiar story. It's the story of the raising of Lazarus. And we know that it has a tremendous impact on the family members of Lazarus. But apparently it had, as it spread, it had a tremendous impact on every single person that seemed to hear the story. If you go to John 12 and verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him. So think about how many times these, these groups of people had followed Jesus simply because of Jesus, simply because of what he taught, simply because of the things that he had done. And yet now we get this phrase here in John 12, not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So it has a tremendous impact, this raising of Lazarus on the movement, as it were, of Jesus from place to place. We also see, however, sadly, that it has an impact on those that would be called enemies of Christ. And there are those people that say, you know what, we have to get rid of him, but not just him. Verse 10 says the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. And so it has a tremendous impact. And verse 11 says on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So there's a lot that happens even in this little three verse uh, introduction to our study, there's a lot of moving pieces going on post Lazarus's resurrection. There are the enemies of Christ who are standing up and saying, this is it. This is the breaking point. We know now that we must get rid of Jesus, but also they want to get rid of Lazarus. It has an impact on, I would say, sort of your casual follower of Jesus who says, look, I'm, I'm amazed at the things he's been doing. I'm amazed at the things he's been saying, but I need to see this man that he brought out of the tomb four days after he went in. I, I need to see some of these things. And it's it's fascinating to, I would say, your casual observer. And then there's also the conversion factor that's taking place. As verse 11 tells us that many of the Jews who heard this story, who saw Lazarus with their own two eyes, began to be swayed in their belief about Jesus. We have the triumphant entry, beginning in verse 12. And it's sad to think that there were some who shouted Hosanna that day as Jesus rode in. There were some of those same people that perhaps shouted crucify him at a different time. It's, it's sad to think about the disciples in verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 16, looked at what was happening, saw what was happening, and yet did not understand it at first. The Bible tells us that when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Verse 17 tells us the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So you get the story of Lazarus having all these different tentacles throughout the people, throughout the, the region where Jesus was teaching and preaching. So it's amazing to think how much was done simply with the word of mouth. People were questioning things that they had known for years. When you think about in the gospel of John, we have the account of Nicodemus in John chapter three, he is coming to Jesus by night 
I'm not going to, to put words in his mouth or put emotions into his story, but it's almost as though he is ashamed to come to Jesus at night. He's so concerned and, and worried about maybe some of the thoughts even that he was having about who Jesus was and what that could mean that he comes to Jesus by night and tries to get clarification only for Jesus to really call him out and tell him, I know why you're really here and to answer his question for him. And then you get to John chapter seven and the Pharisees and the chief priests and those that were the rulers of that day are, are debating what they need to do about Jesus. They feel like they need to get rid of him somehow. And Nicodemus is the one that says, look, are, are we the type to put a man in prison or put a man to death or to punish a man without giving him a fair trial? And his own people, his own comrades, his own people that he had been surrounding himself with for who knows how long say, are, are you going to follow him too? Are you one of his people? And then finally, as Jesus is taken off the cross, it's not just Joseph of Arimathea that shows up, it's Nicodemus, no longer afraid of being in the light as a follower of Jesus, now fully embracing his role as a follower of Jesus. So you see that these things are happening, and it's happening not only to individuals like Nicodemus, but to groups of people. The impact that's being had is amazing. It's no, nothing short of phenomenal. Verse 18 of John chapter 12 says the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So again, the story of Lazarus has yet another impact. Now it's another group. It's another mass of people who are now being drawn to Jesus because they know what he did. But I want you to pay attention specifically to verse 19. In verse 19, <clears throat> we get the Pharisees. And the first thing that they say, in the English Standard Version, it says, you see that you are gaining nothing. One other translation says it this way. <clears throat> you see, it's impossible. There's nothing that you can do. Look, the world has gone after him. Maybe perhaps you have been in a congregation where someone will say something along these lines. You see, the world is just running away. The world is just going to, to pot. It's just, it's over. We call those people, at least where I grew up, we called those people Chicken Littles. If you remember the story of Chicken Little, Chicken Little screams, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, and the people around him are thinking, how could you say that? You don't know what you're talking about. You're overreacting. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. This is not a Chicken Little moment. This is a revelation the Pharisees look up and they realize there's, there's no stopping Jesus. Better yet, there's no stopping his message. Beyond that, there's no stopping the movement. If you can't stop the movement and you can't stop the message, you can't stop the Messiah. He's moving forward with his teaching, with his preaching, with his influence. And their response is simply almost to throw up their hands and say, look, there's nothing you can do. The world has gone after him. We know that in multiple places, they talk about the fact that the Pharisees were scared to get after Jesus, were scared to take Jesus because of the people. And the people were listening to Jesus. And while maybe they didn't like everything that they heard, much like it is on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night or even tonight, as we study the Bible, sometimes our human brain says, I don't really like that because maybe it's 
touching a nerve. Maybe it's touching a part of our life that we don't really want to acknowledge or deal with. Much in the same way, they were listening to what Jesus said. And like I said, maybe they didn't like every piece of it, but they couldn't help but be moved by it. And because of that, we're introduced to a group of people. We don't know any of their names. We're not told any of their names. We're simply told by John in verse 20, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. That's all. That's all we're told. They come to Philip. Now, Philip has a Greek name, but he's a Jew. And they offer him a, an acknowledgement, a, a sign of respect. They use the word sir. They don't use master. They don't use teacher. They don't use rabbi. They don't use Lord. They use the word sir. It's, it's merely a, a sign of being polite. When I was growing up, my father always told me that if anybody was older than you, you refer to them as Mr. or Mrs. It doesn't matter if they're five years older than you, 10 years older than you, or, or 70 years older than you. It's just a matter of respect, son. It's just a matter of being polite. You refer to people and you respect them and you be polite to them because that is what we ought to do. The older that I've gotten, I've still maintained that. I still try to refer to people by those terms, and I don't mean them in any way, shape, or form other than a form of respect. If I'm writing an email to someone and I know that that person is older than me, I try to include things like, good morning, sir, good evening, sir. And that is sort of the similar thing that you have here. Sir, they, they, want, to, they want to show respect. Because they know that Philip is one of Jesus's followers. He's one of his apostles. And then you get the title of our lesson. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, after all this background that we've done, after all of this communication that we've done and all this research we've done, knowing from John 11 forward, Jesus's fame is growing by leaps and bounds. The message is growing by leaps and bounds. The influence, the impact, the uh, Everything that he's doing, people are acknowledging and seeing. I find it hard to believe that these people had never literally seen Jesus with their own eyes. It's entirely possible that they have not, but when you do a little research into this word, it's not the word to physically see with your eyes. If it were merely that, they've already accomplished that. Jesus is there, and when they say, we wish to see Jesus, Philip could have simply pointed and said, there he is. And they could have turned and gone on their merry way, and they would have said, yes, we, we've seen Jesus. But there's obviously something more to what they're saying other than physically with their own eyes seeing Jesus. So what is it? What is it that they're meaning by this terminology? I would suggest to you that what they're meaning by it is they want a connection with Jesus. They ask someone who has that connection. Philip, they say, we want to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. We, we would to see Jesus. We, we would see Jesus. Not physically, but personally. On a much deeper level, they wanted to spend time with him. I'm reminded of those two on the road to Emmaus. As they walked along and they were talking about all the things that they had seen and experienced in Jesus, making himself unknown to them comes up and asks them what it is they're talking about. And you remember, they look at him and they think that he has lost his mind. Are you the only person that doesn't know what's happened? He goes with them, he stays, and as he sits at their table, he reveals himself to them and vanishes. 
And those two look at each other and say, did our hearts not burn within us as he spoke? That's what these Greeks were looking for. That moment, that connection, that relationship with Jesus, they could have never known. There was no way they would have known. There's no way they could have known what Jesus' response was going to be to that request. You see, they don't get to say that to Jesus. Verse 22 tells us Philip went and he told Andrew. Andrew and Philip then went and told Jesus. They don't get to say it to Jesus. They say it to Philip. Philip shares it with Andrew. And it's always interesting to me to, to look at people in the, in, the, in the Bible and, number one, realize they're real human beings. These aren't fake people created for a story. They're real human beings. But number two, it's interesting to see characteristics that you could pick up on as you read. And Andrew is always in the middle of bringing somebody to Jesus. He's always in the middle, not just in an evangelism sort of way. It's almost as though he has this, he has a connection with Jesus that's somewhat unique. In the sense that, in this case, Philip doesn't go to Jesus himself. He goes to Andrew first. And he says, Andrew, this is what these people have said. And Andrew says, okay, you come with me and let's go tell Jesus. It's just interesting to pick up. It's just a side note. It has no major bearing on our lesson tonight. Just a side note, interesting to note. Go back and look at all the places where Andrew is and see how many different times you see Andrew being the one to bring somebody up to Jesus. It's just interesting. The Greeks could have never guessed, never imagined that Jesus's response to their request were these words. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It would have made almost no sense. I'm not going to say it would have made no sense, but it almost makes no sense for that to be the response. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus's response is, the time has come for me to be glorified. It just sounds somewhat strange. It's reminiscent of John chapter 2. If you remember in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana, you remember that Jesus' own mother comes to him and asks him to intervene. They have run out of wine. And, and I'm not going to read into the text. It's, it's just interesting that she comes to him with what seems to be a, an issue with the wedding party itself. And Jesus' response by some has been taken as disrespectful. It's obviously not. Jesus would not stoop to that. His response is, woman, what does that have to do with me? My time has not yet come. It's interesting that now here in John chapter 12, you find him saying, my time has come based off of the comment or the request of another group of people. This time, not his mother, a, a complete group of strangers. And he says, my time is here. It's, it's come. It's fascinating. When you really get down into the, the actual physicality of the scene, if you can imagine, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem on the back of a donkey with palm branches being laid down and palm branches being waved with things being shouted at him like Hosanna, things like blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Only to hear, probably through the grapevine, that the Pharisees were saying things like, look, we can't do anything with him. He's impossible. The whole world's following him. The physicality of the scene brings us now to this worship at the feast, and I would envision that there are lots of people milling about, moving about, talking and discussing different things. And now you have this spotlight put 
on Jesus because these Greeks said, we wish to see Jesus. Because now that spotlight comes upon him, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach an unforgettable lesson. What does he reveal to them? Well, listen to his words beginning in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, there's going to be more that he's going to say in just a moment, but let's just focus in on what he teaches in verses 24, 25, and 26. The first thing that I want you to pay attention to is that he acknowledges that suffering and glory are closely connected. He knows. He's going to say in just a moment that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. He's going to say exactly what he knows to be his death and how he's going to die. John tells us as much in verse 33. He tells us that in that, the glory is coming. Suffering and glory are closely connected. It's interesting to consider the fact that the cross is the place and the means of Jesus' glorification. David Leip wrote that Jesus was glorified through death as the obedient son who accomplished the mission for which the father had sent him. You see, that's a paradox to us. It doesn't seem to make any sense on the outset. You mean to me that he has to die for, for success to be found? Yes, that's exactly what's going to have to happen. You see, we don't, it's not that we don't understand it. We just don't necessarily like it. You see, in all of our stories, the hero survives at the end. The hero gets the girl. The hero saves the world. The hero gets a position of power. And we, we leave the movie or we leave the book. We leave the TV show with our hero standing tall. And yet, in this case, it sounds like our hero is going to be beaten and die. How are we to find success in that? How are we to find glory in that? And yet you and I know, because we have the completed word of God in front of us, we understand exactly how that takes place. You think about passages like Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about the very idea that he has now been lifted to the right hand of God. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Think about all those different places where it mentions the very idea that because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that you and I now have hope. Yes, yes, he's going to suffer. Absolutely, he's going to suffer, and he is going to suffer horribly. But the glory is coming. He teaches them a threefold illustration. Us preachers, we like illustrations. We like being able to take the point we're trying to make, and we like to try to put it into a term that's easy to grasp. Jesus was obviously known for this. All of the parables are preached that way. It's an illustration of sorts. This is no different. He uses an illustration. As a matter of fact, he uses something that he's very familiar with and the people were very familiar with. He uses an agricultural reference that they would have all understood. 
he tells them, first of all, verse 24, that life comes through death. You see, we, we look at that and we say, that makes no sense to us. And yet in the agricultural world, it makes perfect sense. Look at what he says. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Anyone who's ever planted seed understands that. It has to die for the fruit to come out. It's, it's just an understood. And yet, to us, maybe even today, we still struggle with this concept. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for our nature today? Well, you see, there's a lot of things that we must put to death so that we can truly achieve life. Jesus said in John chapter 10, this very same gospel, just a couple of chapters earlier, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus didn't come to bring death. He came to bring life. But to get to that, one must put to death the old way of living to accomplish that life. In the second place, he says in verse 25, true life is accomplished through sacrifice. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. Again, building on the same point, there are going to be some sacrifices that you and I are going to have to make if we truly want to achieve the life that God has laid out in front of us. And then he says in verse 26, that the life of service is the life of honor. The closing line in verse 26, before you move into verse 27, is this, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Some of us, myself included, struggle with the idea of service. Uh, we like to be served. We have no problem with that. We love being served. As a matter of fact, we go to restaurants, we sit down, and if the server is not there in an, an allotted amount of time made up by us, we get somewhat frustrated. And I know some good Christian people who may act a fool when the server is not there when they believe they ought to be. We enjoy being served. And sometimes we struggle with the idea of service. Jesus says, well, if you want the Father to honor you, then you have to live a life of service. Some might say, well, that doesn't seem fair. I, I, I want to be a follower of Christ, but I don't know about all that service. Well, if you're going to follow Christ, then you have to be a servant. See, Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. Came to seek and to save that which is lost. You see, that's, that's service. It's servant leadership. It's what Jesus was about, and it's what he commands from his followers. And what better offer can you be made than for Jesus to say that if you live a life of service, then the Father will honor you. There's no better offer you're going to find on this earth and anywhere else for that matter. Now, transition, if you will, to verse 27. Because, yes, it's in the same speech, as it were. John gives it to us in the same running, but it's divided in our Bibles typically. There's a, a title there above verse 27, because Jesus says in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. Some have said this is John's answer to the other gospels report about the anguish in the garden. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record for us that Jesus went into the garden and he knelt down or he went down on his face and he prayed to God. And if you remember in those moments, it's, it's a very heavy, heavy moment, a heavy burden, if you will to consider that Jesus is getting ready to die. And he knows the manner in which he's going to die, and he's preparing himself for that. And Jesus asks openly of God, if there be any other way, then let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus prays that three separate times. And yet when he comes out the third time, he has his answer. He has rid himself of that concern, as it were. He's prayed about it. He's dealt with it. Now he's ready to go on. He tells his apostles, see, my betrayer is at hand. It's almost a, 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 almost a different style of speaking that Jesus has that third time when he exits the garden. And so some have said, this is John's version, if you will, of that feeling that Jesus had when he says, my soul is troubled. Much has been made of what he says next. Some people think it's a hypothetical. Some people think it's a prayer. It doesn't really seem to fit in the prayer mold because he answers it. But it's just interesting to think that Jesus says out loud to those that are listening, now is my soul troubled. Now remember, this backs up to our title. The Greeks said we wish to experience or we wish to personally know Jesus. We wish to connect with Jesus. And now Jesus says, my soul is troubled because he realizes, and he said as much in verse 23, that the time is coming for his impending death. What shall I say? That's the next thing that he says, or what we have recorded here. Father, save me from this hour. You can read tone and inflection at times into to words that you see on a page, and this is one of those moments Jesus is not, it's not sarcastic, it's not tongue-in-cheek, it's, it's a teachable moment. My soul is troubled, he says, but what am I to say? Father, save me from this, but for this purpose I have come. Again, it's why some say that this is John's response to Jesus' moment in the garden. And then he says these words, Father, glorify your name. And we get a miraculous instance here. The voice comes from heaven and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. I couldn't help but think, maybe perhaps you did the same. I couldn't help but think about all the different ways from the Old Testament forward that God had glorified his name. All the different things God had done, not just for the children of Israel, but all throughout history. Even going back all the way to Genesis 1 and 2, think about the creation itself as bringing glory to God, God being glorified through his creation, God being glorified even in his moment where he walks into the garden after the first sin has happened and the mercy that God shows towards Adam and Eve. Some might say differently, but that's what you will find there. And you get the reveal, as it were, I guess for lack of a better term, the reveal of a plan that is coming. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. You look at Genesis chapter 4, the mercy of God towards Cain, the grace of God in Genesis 3, the mercy of God in Genesis 4. You think about all the different ways that God has been glorified through the Old Testament, even the flood, even things like the Tower of Babel, even things like the promise to Abraham. The, the dealings with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the dealings with the kings and the prophets and the judges and Moses and Joshua and all the many different ways in which God has been glorified. Now you get to when Jesus comes onto the scene and all the different miracles and things that Jesus has done and has consistently done in the name of his Father. And so the first part of the speech, it's very short. It's one sentence. The first part of the speech from the voice of heaven says, I have glorified it. 
And there was no arguing with that. Then the second part, and I will glorify it again. If you put yourself in the physicality of the scene, you put yourself there, you, you think about being in that spot. And yes, we have the remainder of the story right here in front of us. We read it and we know exactly what it says. They would not have known the rest of the story. So perhaps for those that were keenly aware, those that were paying attention, maybe they heard those words and they thought, well, I don't really understand what he means by that. Verse 29 says that there was some argument, some confusion over what happened. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Uh, thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And what, Either way, if you heard those words, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. It feels like something's coming. You should know. That is emphasized when Jesus says in verse 30, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. This has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus knows who God is. Jesus knows that the glory belongs to God. Jesus knows full well that God will glorify his name. He doesn't need to hear this. It's the people. It's all of those witnesses standing around that heard it thunder, if they want to call it that. It's for all those people standing around that heard a voice clearly speak. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. It's for them. You might think if you were in that spot, you might be confused about what the message is. Okay, what? I understand that this is a voice from heaven speaking, whether or not you think it might be an angel, whether or not you think it's the voice of God, whatever the case may be. What's the message? And Jesus makes it crystal clear in verses 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Ah. See our connection back to our original group of people, back to our original group of Greeks? You see it right there at the very end of Jesus' clarification, verse 32. When I am lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. You say, wait a minute, how does that connect back to the Greeks? Well, know this as part of our background. Know this. This was the week that the cleansing of the temple took place. And it was from the court of the Gentiles that Jesus drove out the money changers. If you're a Greek, you're not a Jew. So therefore, you would have understood the idea of being left out or held out or pushed out into a different place when it came time for worship. Jesus says in verse 32, when I am lifted up, I'm going to draw not some, not a few, but all men to me. It's also interesting to note, let's skip ahead just for a second, down to verse 36, the last part of verse 36. When Jesus had said all of these things, he departed and hid himself from them. John goes on to add to that, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And he explains that this 
fulfilled prophecy given by Isaiah. It's sad to think that there were people that day that were the promised people of God who had heard and seen all the things that Jesus had done and yet still did not believe. And here were Greeks who had come and had heard and seen all those same exact things and said, we believe and we wish to see Jesus. We wish to be connected to Jesus. We wish for a personal relationship with Jesus. It's sad, but yet these kinds of things are happening even today. People can be sitting by each other in a pew. The message can be preached, not because of the messenger standing up there with the microphone, but yet because of the message coming from God's word. And it can land on the same two people. One can hear it and not be swayed in any way, shape, or form and can be looking at their watch waiting to leave while another stands there, sits there, stands there brokenhearted, realizing their need for repentance. It's amazing, perhaps, that even now there are those that have heard the gospel preached. There are those that have heard and read for themselves the very things that we're talking about, and yet they still don't believe, while others have read those things and have devoted their lives to Jesus. The other things that Jesus teaches, it's not just about opening the door for everyone. There's also something, two things contained in verse 31. It's the judgment of the world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You see, Satan perhaps thought he had struck a fatal blow when Jesus was put on the cross. Little did he know. Little did he know a fatal blow was indeed struck, but it wasn't to Jesus, and it certainly wasn't to God. It was to Satan himself. In passages like this, we get Jesus telling him that you, you don't even realize what's coming. And we as Christians should take great encouragement, knowing that our Lord and Savior knew exactly what was happening, went through with it, suffered and he died and was glorified three days later, raised from the dead. And sometime later, it put at the right hand of God. Now he intercedes for us. And you see the power that Satan thought he had, even momentarily, even perhaps for a physical day or two. He had no power. He had nothing. Jesus has all the power. Jesus has all the glory. And he says in verse 31, look, the ruler of this world doesn't even know it yet, but this is the, the coming end of him. It's coming. Verse 34, there's some confusion, as you might imagine. If you were there that day, you might have been in the same boat. They said, we've heard from the law, the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And Jesus, ever looking for those opportunities to teach, says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Read that passage and you understand, I hope, I hope that you understand what Jesus is teaching them. He's saying, look, you're asking all of these questions, and yet the one greater than Solomon, yet the one greater than Jonah stands before you. The light is with you a little while longer. Walk in the light. Walk in the light. 
if you read the Gospel of John, we don't have time to get into it tonight, but if you read the Gospel of John and you just focused on all the different places where John talks about light and darkness, it's a worthwhile study, and it, it will probably bring about some intense moments for you because it's interesting to note how John uses those concepts. But before we close, I want to use one of those concepts, and it's not in the Gospel of John. It's in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Remember what Jesus just taught them in John chapter 12, and now turn to 1 John chapter 1. Same author, different time frame, obviously, but he begins in verse 5 by saying, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. What a beautiful picture, right? What a beautiful teaching. And yet here John is telling you, look, we heard this a long time ago. We heard this a while back. We heard this in John chapter 12. I wrote about this very thing. It's interesting to see how the teachings of Jesus carry over. John wrote back in John 12, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. We're walking in the light as he is in the light. The blood of his son, this very moment that he says is coming, when I am lifted up, he says, you will see me. You will have a relationship with me. And for all who come after, there will be this open door of relationship available. Now, as we close our time of study tonight, first of all, let me say again how grateful I am for the opportunity for us to study together tonight. I have truly enjoyed it. I hope that it has been beneficial to you. And I hope that you can be blessed by the teachings of Jesus, not because of anything that I have done, but because of what our Lord has done and because of the ability we have in God's word to study together and be encouraged and uplifted. But let me close by imploring you. If you're not walking in the light as he is in the light, that you need to rectify that immediately because as Jesus himself taught in John chapter 12, those who walk in the darkness have no idea where they're going. You have no idea. If you're walking in darkness right now, you have no idea what you're doing. You don't understand perhaps what it is that you're setting yourself up for. That judgment that he spoke about in verse 31, that judgment is not a pleasant thought for you if you're walking in darkness. If you're walking in the light, as we studied tonight, if you're walking in the light, you keep walking. You keep putting one foot in front of another. I know that there are days where that is very tough, but Know this, that glory is coming. Know this, that there is a rest for those who continue to walk and labor in the Lord. I hope tonight has been an encouragement. I'd like, if it's okay, I'd like to close with a word of prayer. Then I'll turn things over back over to Jonathan and Eric. And again, thank you for tuning in tonight. Let's bow together and pray together as we close. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son and for his example. Thank you for his teaching. Thank you for passages like the one we've studied tonight. Help us all to desire to have a personal relationship with you through your word and through our, this avenue of prayer. We're thankful for that avenue of prayer. And God, we continue as, as servants of yours and pray that you will bless us. As we depart from this study tonight, help us to take the things that your word teaches 
and apply them to our lives. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.